everybody, it's Luzanne. I'm here with Meredith. Hey, everybody. And uh, we're, you might uh, need a little bit of an apology. We're at our logistics center, our warehouse, and every now and then you might hear some beeping. So <laughs> in advance, we're telling you. Are they just moving wine around back there? That's that it. That's it. I think they're loading to your car, actually. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I'm excited today. I've got a real dear friend. Uh, We've been buddies for many, many years, and um, just of one of the most fascinating guys I've ever met, besides being a master chef and a master, pretty close to being a master psalm, maybe not by certification, but by palate and, and experience, and uh, it's Ron Finolio. And um, the thing that really fascinated me about him, Meredith, mm -hmm. was uh, his wine, one of his wines, uh, his Chardonnay, actually won the most French-like Chardonnay at the Judgment of Paris. That's amazing. To have someone here that was part of that is pretty cool. Yeah, and to hear the story today. I can't today. wait to hear more stories about this. And for you to enlighten our guest it's more good. about the Judgment of Paris, we talked about what Napa was like before, before it was Napa. Yeah. <laughs> So, Ron, um, thanks for being on today. And, and um, you know, what? so when did you start making wine up here? In Napa? Yeah. We started making, well, we didn't start making wine up here until uh, in almost the 2000s. We started the winery down in uh, Oakland, in Emeryville. Oh, in Emeryville, oh, right. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because that's where we lived. Yeah. Oh. So you started, but where were the grapes coming from? The grapes were all coming from here. They from were coming here? from... Okay. Uh, Dick Stelsner's Vineyard over on uh, uh, the Silverado Trail. They came from Sonoma Couture in Sonoma. They came from Winery Lake, Rene de Rosa's uh, Vineyard down opposite uh, Domaine uh, Carneros. Okay. Oh, right there, okay. yeah. By Madonna Vineyards and all By that. By Madonna Vineyards, right yeah. across the street from from Domaine Carneros. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. okay. So you were, but you were making it in Oakland. We made it in Oakland, yeah. Wow. So you shared with me uh, a couple times when we were driving around the sort of the story you know and like first of all what what made you enter enter your wine in the judgment or did did uh, Spurrier pick it out or something Spurrier drove around the state and he kind of had a wish list of people he wanted to meet or just taste and pick out things um, at that time there was less than 50 wineries in Napa so 50 wow. wineries. Less how, than. And how yeah. many today? 650 today. Mm. And, and counting. Well, in 1972, when Petercrest was founded, Burgess was founded. That's okay. when Chateau Montalena was refounded. Okay. Uh, that's when Stag's Leap was founded by Warren Winiarski. Uh, there were 18 wineries that would be household names today that were started in 1972 and wow. there were still you know only in the 50s in terms of number of wineries in the in Napa Valley at that time that's, that's crazy and you know today I've, I'm, I'm in the wine country you know maybe like four or five times a week not one week goes by Ron that I don't hear of a new winery that I've never heard of never heard true. of right it's crazy so true so what happened um, you were were you making Chardonnay at the time? Or? We were making Chardonnay. Uh, and I don't know how Steve Spurrier heard of us or any of the wines that he selected. 
I don't know how he heard of Warren Winiarski. I don't know how he heard of, uh, of Montalena. Uh, because, remember, these wineries were only one or two or three years, years old. old. Yeah, Stags right. Leap and was so three years old with it, the wine. It was, he probably had to ask people, who do you know who's making good yeah. wine? And get, yeah. and get verbal referrals. Um, you know, one of the funny stories about the Judgment of Paris is... Um, which I always like to tell when I'm in France, <laughs> uh, is that Chateau Montalena was restarted in 1972, and the wine, the, their Chardonnay that was in the Judgment of Paris was our first vintage. Peter Crest, and they won, and they won best Chardonnay of the show. Peter Crest got most French style. It was our first vintage, 1972, that was in the oh, Judgment wow. of Paris. Wow. Warren Winiarski had his 1973 Cabernet. He made wine in 1972, but 73 was his first commercial size vintage. So the three wineries that ended up at the top at the Judgment of Paris, it was East, our first commercial vintages. Kind of lays to rest whether you have to be a winemaker for 500 years <laughs> before you know how to make wine. When you hear people in France or Italy say they're a 15th generation winemaker, and you're saying, well, we won the Judgment of Paris with our first vintage. It's kind of an amusing story. That's so crazy. You've got a pretty cool story with Andrei Cholichev. Um, did he come down and taste your wine? I don't think wine? everyone knows... That yeah, name. tell us so a little I think bit. First, tell us he's a, about he's him the, and uh, how he yeah, came to be. Yeah. Andrei Chelichev is probably the godfather or great grandfather, whatever name you want to put on it, of the so. Napa Valley. I think so. Uh, he was born in Russia and he studied chemistry and he was at the Louis Pasteur Institute in France studying and he went to learn winemaking down in Bordeaux. And uh, he met the owners of Beaulieu Vineyards in the uh, 30s, right after Prohibition. Mm. And they asked him if he would like to come to California and help develop a wine industry. There was no major Cabernet plantings uh-huh. in the Napa Valley at that time. Yeah. There was Zinfandel and Carignan and everything that the farmers had brought with them from the old country. And I heard, right. I heard Riesling was down at uh, down at uh, uh, Winery Lake Renita Rosa had planted Riesling okay. Riesling is a cool climate grape so you need mm-hmm. to be on the bay not at the north end mm-hmm. of the valley like like Chardonnay and Pinot they're, they're, yeah cool, they're cool climate cool, yeah. whereas Cabernet is a warm climate right. grape but anyway so Andre Chelichev started in, in, in the mid 30s working for Beaulieu Vineyards and he is the guy who really established the George Latour uh, uh, oh. perspective and started planting okay. Cabernet and he really turned Napa Valley into Cabernet country okay. um, uh, as such he was really the dean of American winemakers that's what I that's how you know, I look the at mo- he, yeah. and and you know he probably he consulted for Chateau Saint-Michel up in Washington okay. he helped start Robert Mondavi he helped start us he helped start uh, uh, uh Warren Winiarski in the business. He probably coached 20 wineries to get going. Now Mikhail Gergrich, I think. Wasn't he close with him? Yeah, he was, well, Gergrich was at Montalena at that time. Yeah, that's Warren right. So Winiarski therefore, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, as such, 
you could say, well, 20 wineries isn't that many. There's 600 wineries. No, there was only 50 at that <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. And he helped start 20 of them. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty significant That's contribution. Yeah. The, only other, the only other person who's probably as famous would be Maynard Amarine, who was at UC Davis, and he started the UC Davis program mm. in terms of grape okay. research and things like that. Mm. So Maynard Amarine and Andrei Chelichev were probably the two most important figures in winemaking in the uh, uh, period of 30, 40, and 50. Okay. So you wanted me to tell you how Andre found us. He called one day and he said, I understand you guys make good wine. This was, we were amateur winemakers in the basement <laughs> of our, one of our houses. And he said, I'm coming to dinner tomorrow night. And here's, you know, he we invited didn't, we didn't know, you know, the yeah. most iconic winemaker in the state. Yeah. And, uh, and he showed up with his three packs of cigarettes. He couldn't taste when he wasn't smoking. He said, let's go to the basement, boys. We got into the barrel room we had in the basement of our house, and he filled the room up with cigarette smoke. He said, now let's taste. Oh, really? And at dinner that night, he said, you guys are really good winemakers, and you should go commercial. And four years later, we're in the Judgment of Paris. Oh, wow. That's an incredible story. You don't know how he found nope. you? and I mean, what was your thought when you get a call from him, and he says, I'm coming to try your wine? Yeah, kind of like, who's Andre Chelichev? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the name guess, wasn't, yeah. yeah. I guess he's coming to dinner. Right. So, you know, Meredith, I've, we've seen the Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock. If, if, for those of you who haven't, Bottle Shock is a movie that kind of gives the story about what the Judgment of Paris was about. Most, most some facts, but not all the facts are there, I, I would guess. But Yeah, and they're supposedly doing more of a documentary. It's called The Judgment of Paris 1976. Yes. Like the book. Yes, yes. And that's going to be much better, Ron, you know, because... But, you know, for those of us that are... I mean, I'm so fascinated with, with the judgment because it did make our whole industry in California. So, Ron, not, not counting the, the movie, what was it really like? Like, what was the events? You know, it, it's a funny story because nobody took it seriously. Mm. Really? Um, Jim Barrett, the guy who relaunched Montalena, he bought the property and relaunched the first vineyard for 72, was in France at that time, in Bordeaux, visiting friends, didn't even go to Paris to see the judgment being conducted. Um, it was kind of like, a, oh, well, you know, Steve Spurrier is putting on a tasting. So what? Uh, it didn't become so what until the panel of judges who are all owners of great estates from Bordeaux or wine writers or sommeliers uh, or wine critics in France, there was no Americans on the panel, uh, tasted the wines and came up and they said Stag's Leap won for best Cabernet and, or best Bordeaux style and Montalegna got best Chardonnay and the judges didn't believe it. They wanted to do a recount because they said this is not possible. Two wineries have never heard of from Napa in their first vintages. And I heard something like an $8 bottle of Chardonnay. Couldn't best, you know, <laughs> yeah. 500 years of history from Bordeaux, but in fact, that's what happened. And it may have been a non-event, except there was a wine writer there. There was one writer there. And uh, he was either from uh, the New York Time, Times or Time, Time Magazine. Magazine. Yeah. And he wrote an article on it. Mm -hmm. 
and the phone started ringing off the, off the hook. That's it just started going crazy. Really? People all of a sudden wanted yeah, the wines that were in the judgment of Paris. The what? liquor store, uh, the wine shops, just they would say, no, we don't have it. As soon as they picked the phone up, it wow. would be ringing. They'd pick the phone up and say, no, we don't. We don't have that. We're sold out. That's just the... That's overnight. crazy to think about. And there was only 11 wineries from California in the Jesuit of Paris. Mm-hmm. One of them was eliminated, the bottle that was flawed, so there's only 10 wineries and 11 wines from California that were in the Jesuit of Paris. How many total wines? Do you know how many French? Uh, there, was was a, there was a 12 French and 11 California wines. Okay. okay. There was supposed to be six white from each side and six red from each side. Okay, okay. Um, and as I said, Steve Spurrier owned a wine store in Paris. He was a British guy. Yeah. He's now a winemaker in England. It's very interesting. He makes sparkling wines in southeastern England. He has a, a, a what would be called a champagne cellar, but it's not in champagne. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Meredith brought champagne. a bottle over. It was really good. Yeah, yeah he makes very good wine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I saw him at a tasting in Paris two or three years, in England two or three years ago. Um, but he had this idea that he wanted to show people in Paris what California wines were like, and he went over and selected some and brought them back mm-hmm. to Paris. It was all happenstance, if you want to call it that, and decided to put this tasting on, and all Gosh. of a sudden it became history, and of course it made the difference of put in the Napa Valley on the map, because mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. people knew that there was well, quality. Did, did you have any friends that had wine over there, any of your buddies? At the time, no, not that I know it or can remember. Yeah, I got. I was twenty-seven years old. <laughs> Golly, that was crazy. After that happened, so how quickly did you start to see? I mean, obviously, you were getting the phone calls and those, but in terms of the development of Napa Valley, did that? Would you see a lot more wineries yeah, what did starting you know? to see? Um, like, you know, when was the big boom then of more that's wineries? That's a good question. Like, when, there are a lot it? of wine writers who would have called the nineteen seventies the golden age of the development. Okay. of the Napa Valley. If you go back and look when many of the great wineries were started or one of the ones that had started beforehand, mm-hmm. all of a sudden blossomed. You have old names. You have Hanzel. Mm. Yeah. You have uh, Spring Mountain. You have mm. Stony Hill. You have uh, uh, the, both Mondavi family wineries, Charles Krug and yeah. Mondavi. You had Inglenook. You had Beaulieu. Uh, you had Louis Martini mm. was active back then. Uh, said Burgess was founded. Vitacrest was founded. Uh, Stag's, Stag's Leap was founded. Um, but it led into a um, real awareness, people wanting to learn more about what Napa wines were like. Uh-huh. And because of Andre Chelichev's heritage, it became Cabernet country. <laughs> People always assume that Bordeaux is Cabernet country. Mm-hmm. Bordeaux is at a latitude north of the 42nd parallel. It's up north of Portland, about between Portland and Seattle, mm-hmm. so it's much colder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's on the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. so it's right where the uh, uh, waters from the Atlantic Ocean mixed with the waters coming down from the North Sea. doesn't get the full impact of the uh, of the Gulf Current, and uh, so Bordeaux is 65% planted to Merlot. Merlot is an earlier ripening grape, mm-hmm. ripens two weeks, three weeks earlier than Cabernet, and in the cooler climate, it flourishes. Right. And of course, you have such fabulous wines like Chateau Petrus that command mm-hmm. 
two, three, four, five thousand dollars a bottle <laughs> that are eighty five percent Merlot. And people over here don't understand how really good Merlot could be mm -hmm. after the movie uh, uh, yeah. uh, Sideways. When yeah, you thank you, Sideways. Everybody kicked Merlot so around, smart. but Merlot is really a, a wonderful grape in its own right, mm -hmm. and it is it's the predominant grape in Bordeaux. My top three favorite grapes, you mm -hmm. know. And all he was saying on Sideways was he was mad that his wife loved Merlot, and for that he wasn't going to drink Merlot. You know? But it is amazing you see what an impact something something like that even you know oh the impact bottle shock had just it just takes yeah. one thing you say to make a to put impact. It, to put the temperature effect on growing wine into context mm -hmm. here we're about lisbon we're south of rome we're south of washington dc here in the napa valley people don't look at the map and say oh napa is really south it really is a warmer climate mm -hmm. than bordeaux burgundy riesling those are all much oh, cooler, cooler climates, climate. where, sure. where the Nebbiolo, also northern Italy, mm -hmm. are all cooler climate growing zones, and the grapes ripen differently than they do here. In Bordeaux, they struggle to get wine to 13.5%, 14 alcohol, and here we struggle to keep it down, down to 13.5% yes. yeah. alcohol. Yeah. So, and that's purely the difference of our climate. Right. And you know the other major factor is terroir, but everybody still looks for the volcanic soils and the schists and the granite and things like that. In both in both areas, but the climate is really pretty different mm -hmm. in both areas. So we're you would say maybe that we're closer to central Italy. Okay. Yeah, we're south of Rome in Napa. South of Rome. We're, yeah, we're, we're central. I Italy. didn't realize that. A Mediterranean. I mean, we're a Mediterranean climate here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which I don't think we we think of ourselves as Mediterranean climate. I mean, I don't think a lot of people think yeah. of Napa well, and Sonoma as that. You know, all you have to do is get, remember, the, the current that comes down from Alaska mm -hmm. that starts in the inland sea of Japan, goes up the coast of Russia, through the Bering Straits, and then it goes offshore because, if you remember, Alaska's far we farther west than we are. Yeah, quite mm -hmm. a bit. And so the inland passage coming down through western Canada is pretty much divorced from that real cold air, mm -hmm. the cold air and the cold water hit the coast at Monterey. That's why it's so cold and it's down there. it's always cold down there. Oh my head. And so people talk about the Petaluma Gap, that's that cold water causes fog to come through the Petaluma Gap and cools Sonoma. Mm -hmm. it, cu it cools at Fort Bragg, the Russian River. Yeah. It cools the Santa Lucia Highlands and and that area and up and then it comes through the Golden Gate and comes north up the Napa Valley. But that's the fog forming at night and cooling the vineyards down to keep the acidity level mm -hmm. high. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which gives the wine its structure and balance. Uh, and you don't have to go far south of Lodi or far, much further north of Sacramento before today I believe it's over hundred and five degrees in the yeah. Central Valley. Okay. And it's not gonna cool down tonight if no. you're out of if you're out of the yeah. area where the ocean breezes blow. So this cold water and cold air blowing down from Alaska hit the coast, basically in central California, and cool the grape growing regions and make them ideal for growing grapes. And create what we call microclimates, microclimates. which are crazy. I mean, from my buddy's house on the west side of Sonoma to my house, it's probably nine, 10 miles, and it's always four to six degrees cooler at my house. Well, the Napa Valley is 30 miles long. Yeah. And the 
the growing regions are Zone 1 in Carneros and Zone 5, one of the warmest in Calistoga. Calistoga. Yeah. And it just goes every few miles up the valley, it changes. about you Lou's told told me a lot but I think just learning a little bit more about your history your your cultural heritage but and where your passion for wine came from and why you wanted to start making wine and a little bit of how your palate developed you know when you talk about developing palate sometimes you grow up with it mm. um, my grandmother before she came to America worked in her aunt's restaurant in Italy. She really knew how to cook. And when she came here and we started being in the agricultural business, she would go out and get tomatoes fresh off the vine, nothing from the grocery store. The grocery store was seven miles away in town. Yeah. You grew the tomatoes and when you sliced them, they had wonderful flavor. And my grandfather would take me out, we were growing apricots at that time and he'd take an apricot off the tree and said, taste this, he said, and it was sweet and it was full of flavor, but it was a little bit mushy. And he would say, we can't send those to the cannery, we can't send those to the grocery store. This is not gonna last overnight in the mm. lugs. He's, and he picked another one and he said, uh, taste this one. And that was a, a harder apricot, didn't have the amount of sugar yet. And he said, this is one we're gonna send to the canneries and to the grocery stores because it'll last for day, a couple of days of shipping. And, and so, when you have this heritage of growing up with food you grew yourself mm -hmm. that is picked at optimum ripeness, uh -huh. that starts you in education of your palate. It's just uh -huh. natural. You don't think your palate's being educated. Yeah. It just happens. You just know some piece of fruit is deliciously sweet and right. have bright flavors. And, um, and then, and then, then, my then my grandfather would send me down to the basement. He made wine in the basement. Uh, and he'd send me down with a pitcher, and he'd say, go suck on the tube that's coming out of the redwood tank and fill the pitcher up and bring it for our guests. <laughs> so Every you go, go suck on the plastic tube, and you fill the pitcher up, and you bring it up. The funny story, my grandmother always had red tablecloths on her table because my grandfather would fill a glass of wine, stand up at the head of the table, pour the glass the length of the table, and say, now the tablecloth is dirty. Let's enjoy ourselves and have that was a his, wonderful dinner. That was his dinner. custom. It was his custom. He would do that. So, you know, I was four or five or six years old when I was drinking wine, tasting wine. I wasn't mm -hmm. drinking it that my grandfather made. And then at dinner time, they'd always give us a tenth of a glass of wine, the rest filled with water, uh -huh. and began to train you. And then probably the seminal thing happened in 1957 when I was taken out of junior high school and high school and sent to Italy to live with my grandmother and I came back from there with an understanding that this was Betty Crocker time in America that cooking chicken breast was not putting four chicken breasts in a Pyrex dish and covering it with canned cream of mushroom soup and putting it in the oven for four hours until it was cooked I came back with an understanding that things were different mm -hmm. over there than they were here and with the advent of the jet plane a lot of Americans began to have those similar experiences, wow, okay. uh, which was the 1960s, Good and they point. came back and they wanted to try better wine, they wanted to try better food, and an evolution was started in America about wine and food. You 
you asked about my palate, Lou, I taste very dry. I don't like a lot of sugar in desserts. I don't like sugar in my wine. Uh, I have a very dry palate. Um, Americans tend to drink sweeter. Yeah. And when we talk about the American palate, one of the funny stories is one of the wineries from France that I represent. Uh, we had some wine here in one of the big chain stores, and after a while we said, you know, it could be selling faster. We went to the lab and we played with it for a while. And we took the formula we developed and sent it back to France and said, on the next vintage, could you make it this way? And they wrote back and said, oh, you want us to Americanize it. Oh, and wow. the perception amongst Europeans is that Americans drink wine with more residual sugar than they do. Which is true. That they like their wines drier. But of course, their wines don't start off with as much sugar content to start with because we already talked about climate. It's yeah. not as hot. They start with less sugar. It ferments dry at lower alcohol. And even if there is no sugar in the wine, you're down at zero residual sugar, but you have 15% alcohol, you can still taste sweetness. You can taste it from the fruit and you can taste it from the alcohol. If you don't believe me, have yourself a glass of real good cognac or armagnac tonight. And when you and don't worry about the heat that you feel from the alcohol. But taste, if you can taste, you will taste sweetness in that drink. Sure. Because alcohol tastes sweet on our palate. And so as we get higher alcohol and more fruit in the wine, it's going to taste sweeter, even if it is not That's high true. residual okay. sugar. That's true. I know middle America loves the residual sugars. You know, I can tell a wine that will sell to the masses in a minute. Well, you went to Ole Miss, Lou, and down yeah. there, the ladies who rock on the rocking porches and who grew up on their mint juleps, they want, or Coca-Cola from Georgia, Moscato. They, want, they want their sweet Moscato, that's right. They want something that's got some sugar in it. So did you learn your cooking skills with, from Italy or from grandmother? Or? From my grandmother, yeah. yeah. Every Sunday was, she made the homemade gnocchi, she made the homemade ravioli, she roasted the lamb that was growing on the ranch, she picked the fresh tomatoes. Uh, and life grandma, was good. Wish grandma was still here. You know, uh, my fa you one cook? of my favorite stories about her was while she was cooking dinner, we always made homemade gelato with the old hand crank machines. Oh, yeah. remember, remember the wood yeah. uh, wood uh -huh. tanks that you put yeah. salt and, and ice in, and you put the tub in, and you stirred it. Yeah. With the paddles until the it, best until it. It's the best. And then she would always macerate peaches. In, uh, in white wine. At that time, it was Amadin bulk yeah. sauterne or bulk wine, right? Came yeah. in a jug. Yeah. And then she'd spoon it over the top of the homemade ice cream. And mm. for years, I searched for the same variety of peaches that she had on the ranch until I finally figured out I didn't care about the peaches. It was the wine and sugar that was making <laughs> yeah. that ice cream taste so good. <laughs> but no, that's how your palate develops. So when you go through all these experiences as kids, and in my family, it goes back to the 1880s. My great-grandfather grew grapes in northern Italy, Merlot and Pinot Grigio, mm -hmm. outside of Venice. And so we have, a, I'm fourth generation in, mm -hmm. in the business. Yeah. I've been doing it. But you also studied, uh, really, I remember you and I would uh, share with each other, and you'd, you enlightened me so much about the, the even the molecular uh, identification from a wine to a food, and you yes. did a, a study on that. There's a great book okay, on that. It's written by a guy named Herb Thieves in in uh, France. There's a book called. It's either Molecules and Taste Buds or Taste Buds and Molecules. Okay. 
and it takes like a piece of toast. So what do you do when you toast it, and how, how do you how does it change the molecular nature of the toast, mm -hmm. and what does it bring out in flavors and spices? And this book will tell you how each wine and food mm. pairs yeah. and why. Really? And the why is I like to ask the question. Uh, uh, your husband's taking you on vacation to India, and you bought some frangipani perfume, Meredith. Okay. And you're wearing frangipani perfume, but it's a long flight back from India. <laughs> so you stop in Hawaii for an overnight to get some rest, and you're sitting under a plumeria tree at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> what wine do you order? And people always, this always gets them. And the answer is Gewurztraminer. Okay. Because if you look at the molecular biology of frangipani perfume, flour that makes the perfume, the plumeria flour, the lychee nut in the Chinese food, and the grape that makes the Gewurztraminer, you're going to find molecular similarities, which is why they complement each other flavor-wise. Okay, and that's... You can do this with, it's you crazy, can do this, right? You can do this with almost every food that there is. You can sit in our tasting room and talk to me about what you like to cook, and after five minutes, I'll give you a wine that you will like. I will guarantee that I can pick out a wine for you after I talk to you for five minutes mm, about your favorite all right, foods. I'm ready. <laughs> tell tell uh, Meredith about um, salmon. And oh, salmon. The best. Well, way yeah, see. salmon's interesting. Um, Meredith, do you like oysters? Mm, if they're cooked. If they're cooked. Have you <laughs> had oysters or clams, raw clams? I've had uh, not raw. Shrimp? You like yes, sushi? Yes, I love okay. shrimp. All right, tell me about raw shrimp raw clams, raw oysters. What is it that you get in the flavors? I Describe get, them. Well, I get that salty. Briny. Briny, yes. The, the, it tastes like this ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Minerally? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like, you swallow, like you swallowed yeah. salt water or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about a piece of salmon. Salmon, I, well, you know, I've, I've been skewed probably by a smoked salmon where you get a lot of those smoke flavors. Yeah, but maybe like... Like, I'm, I get, like, a little oil. Oh, oil, yeah, I definitely right? get the oiliness of the salmon. Fatty, yeah, fatty, oil, rich, oily. Very rich. Rich, yeah. unctuous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unctuous. Do those sound like the same wines to you? No. 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 Exactly. With the oysters, the clams, or shrimp, you want a very dry wine. You want a Sauvignon Blanc, for example. It's got a grassiness or an herbiness or an oceanness to it, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And with the salmon, that wine is too dry. Uh, with the salmon, you want a buttery Chardonnay, uh -huh. or even better, a Pinot Noir. Uh -huh. My favorite recipe for salmon is to put a bottle of Pinot Noir into a saucepan with a container of fresh raspberries, and reduce oh. that until you get a raspberry sausage. All you need, just the bottle of Pinot Noir and the raspberry, because Pinot Noir has raspberries uh -huh. in it. Put the salmon fillets in a frying pan, cold, turn the heat on, Pour a bottle of Pinot Noir, and when it comes to a, a simmer, turn it off and let the salmon sit there until it's warm enough that whatever doneness you want, uh -huh. put the salmon on a plate, spoon the raspberry sauce, pin, raspberry Pinot Noir sauce over the top, and open your third bottle of Pinot Noir to drink. <laughs> I'm in. That's it. All right. That's it. I'm Who wants dinner? Let's see. <laughs> but the idea is, is that Food and wine pairing is fat goes with fat, rich goes with rich, sugar goes with sugar, savory goes with savory, dry goes with dry, austere goes with austere. Uh, and that's, what's, that's what Samuel study is to how to make 
up wines and food yeah. and complement each other. Yeah. The other th school of thought, which I don't ascribe to, is to make food and wine fight, to go to opposite ends of right. the spectrum and make more contrast. But I, I think that caressing is a better way to go. Yeah. So Ron, why don't you share with us your vision? You know, you've, you've been there, done that, and you're doing it. What are you doing now with Vetercrest? Uh, and what, what kind of wine are you developing, and how well, are you doing it? Vetercrest was one of the historic wineries in the Napa Valley. Um, and you have to admit, given the stories we've been telling today, that Napa is, char is Cabernet country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely. mean, it, it, it is the, the show grape of the Napa Valley. So at Vitor Crest, we make, we make uh, different Cabernets from Howe Mountain, from uh, the Oakville Crossroads, from Rutherford, from Mount Vitor. It's interesting that the experienced tasters in the valley can always pick out the difference between a Howe Mountain and a Mount Vitor, for example, because yeah. they, they taste... They do taste differently. They do. That do. doesn't mean one's better or one's no. worse. Mm -mm. So being a uh, iconic, if you want to call it that, historic Napa property, we have to focus on uh, Cabernets, and we do. Um, I like to age my Cabernets for at least four years before we bottle them. So yeah, I like you to get do. the tannins out of them. Yeah. I like that. I like to soften them down. We bottle now at 18 months, which is kind of the cash flow model of winemaking. Okay. And chemistry and things have developed, and we can soften the wine. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, those wines really aren't ready to drink. They need to be sitting in some people's cellar for a year or two or three after they've been bottled to soften down. And you know, we all, the joke in the industry is that the average aging time is the amount it takes a brown bag to get from Safeway to home, and then that's the all the wine's going to age before it gets open and drunk. And it's really not enough for the wine to mm -hmm. show properly. Or to show in the European style that we've been talking about, yeah. right. softer style, yeah. more elegant style, less fruit forward style. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of fruit, but it's, it doesn't hit you mm -hmm. as hard. Um, I also make, uh, for fun, because I love them, my two favorite wines are, are Barolos and Barbadescos from Italy, the oh. Nebbiolo grape, and the Pinot Noir from Burgundy, real Burgundy's not Pinot Noir. Oh, wow. And... They're on the opposite side of the same mountain at the same latitude, same temperature zones. One's in France, one's in Italy. Oh. And if you put a bottle of Nebbiolo and a bottle of Pinot Noir in your cellar and let them age for 10 years, they're almost going to grow together. If you put them in a brown bag, people can mm -hmm. hardly tell the difference. So I love uh, the great Italian wines mm -hmm. and some of the great French wines. But in California, you got to have to focus on the great California wine, yeah. which is Cabernet. Yeah. And obviously Zinfandel. Because Infidel is is people say found a home in California. It also found a home in Southern Italy, where it's mm -hmm. called Primitivo. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and California does really well with with the uh, Chardonnays. Again, the coastal climates. Um, Are you still making Chardonnay? Still make Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. okay. And but I like Chardonnays that don't have malolactic fermentation and don't yeah. have oak. Oh, so I like them to be austere as can be. Yeah, so I like yours, yours too. Yours don't go through it's any a, ML and they're not aged On milk. purpose. No, okay. I, I said to our, my winemaker one time back about 10 years ago, I said, I'm really getting tired of California Chardonnay to make some Chablis. Mm. That was, yeah. We were talking yes. about a style. Yes. We were talking about making a wine that was Chardonnay but you could have with oysters or, or mm -hmm. seafood that wasn't rich. And so we knocked all the grapes off the sunny side of the couple rows of vines, grew the vine, grapes in the shade. We've 
fermented it very small, like like beer kegs, stainless steel beer kegs, oh. and so we could handle it and manage it very carefully. And we rolled it out. Uh, it immediately got 90 points from one of the big wine magazines with the comment, let me warn you, this is a very unique wine. So it, was a, it was elegant, austere, and acidic. And the day we rolled it out, Margaret Mondavi, I was friends with Margaret Mondavi throughout much of my life. And Margaret Mondavi was at the tasting, and we said, Margaret, what do you think of the Chardonnay? And she looked at me, and she said, Ron, this isn't a very good Chardonnay. And I said, Margaret, don't give me any shit. This was, hand, this was handmade stuff to be a certain thing. Yeah, uh-huh. And she said, well, it doesn't taste like Chardonnay. And I said, Margaret, it doesn't taste like what Robert made for you. I said, now that we're through throwing insults at each other, will you please talk to me about the wine? And she said, well, she said, it's citrus and herbal and acidic. And if I didn't know better, I was thinking I was drinking Sauvignon Blanc. And I'm pounding the table and said, yes, I got it right. Yeah. That's what you wanted. And so what you should learn from that is that there's no right and wrong. That's Everybody's palate is point. different. Here you really had Margaret point. Mondavi was married to Robert Mondavi, one of the iconic people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And we're having a debate over whether I made the Chardonnay correctly or not. Yes. Well, they certainly were different. But that doesn't mean right or wrong, spoiled, good, bad. Those type of adjectives don't have... The question is, what does your palate like and what do you enjoy drinking? If you like my Crest wines, drink my wines. If you like somebody else's wines better... Drink their wines. You know, one time, you were, we were talking about soils, you know, Howl Mountain right. to, to Mount Veter. You were sharing with me one time, you were farming off of uh, Robin Williams Vineyard. Yes, correct. And you said, Lou, if it was a par five golf course, every single club would be a different like soil. Remember True, that? Yeah. Uh-huh. How, how, what was that story? Well, Robin Williams had 28 acres of where? vines up on his property. What, where was? Well, nobody knew that Robin Williams had a vineyard up on Mount Vitor because no, if, if, if people knew that, he was always afraid that they were going to storm over of course. the vineyard. They want to go get their souvenir, bring home a cutting off of, that they of broke course. off a vine. Yeah. And his house, he had a 28,000 square foot house up there. They, they'd wreck his house. So, Nobody ever knew that Robin Williams had a big estate up at the top, at the highest point of Mount Vitor. I think it was the finest vineyard in mm. California. Uh, it's got to be one of the tops. My wine off his vineyard, the, one of the writers for Decanter Magazine in London called it the quintessential Cabernet. Yeah. He would, if it was in the magazine, he would have given it 100 points, but it wasn't at a rating. Mm. Uh, um, James Suckling gave it a 93. Uh, wine Enthusiast gave it a 92. Wine Spectator gave it an 88. He was ranked best Cabernet in the world by the Oregon Wine Society. He got double gold for American Fine Wine and from the Samsung Chronicle. Wow. Wine the tastings. Chronicle gave it double gold? Yeah. That's wow. for real. That's uh, for um, real. And so, you know, people said, well, why does it say Mount Vitor, Robin Williams on the label? He would never let us put his name on the label for fear people were going to find out that he had a vineyard and they're going to wreck his vineyard. Well, this vineyard was 28 acres coming down the slope of Mount Vitor at a very, very high elevation, 1,600 feet. And three, only three wineries ever made wine, maybe a fourth one at the end off that vineyard. Mm-hmm. And the wines from that the three winemakers made off of what basically was each had their six, seven, eight acre plot okay. at a slightly different elevation. The wines came out a little different. Some tasted a little greener, some tasted a mm-hmm. little richer. I'm not using the term greener or richer 
from a derogatory standpoint, right, right. but from a descriptive mm-hmm. standpoint. And so it just shows you that, uh, well, we had one, we had made wine from one vineyard on Howe Mountain, and it was from 200 to 600 feet, and there was five different clones of Cabernet on that vineyard, because every time we came down 100 feet, they tested the soil content and changed the clone of Cabernet. Wow. To match the it soil was that many different soil With 100 feet of elevation, changed the uh, how the lava flow wow. came out, and so uh, that changes the, the changes wine, the, the changes sure. the taste of the wine. Even the, that's, terroir. Lava. That's, that's terroir. terroir. That's yeah. terroir. Yeah, that's talking about the dirty crush right there. That's yeah. the dirty crush right there. Yeah, is that, and there's there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you hope you get good soil for yourself. Mm-hmm. The Screaming Eagle is down where the volcano came down through. Uh, uh, um, the Oakville Crossroads, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great wineries there at the Oakville Crossroads. There's Della Valley's very famous, and that's where Plump Jack has their winery. Uh, um, a number of great wineries are located there. We get Cabernet off one of those vineyards, uh, Zinfandel off one of those vineyards. Oh. Uh, but again, that's you can actually see at a certain point there's red soil, and next to it is browner soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was most apparent to me when I was at. Uh, one of the great wineries in the Veneto, uh, the Allegrini Winery, and she, Marlissa Mar- Mar- Allegrini took me out to show her her vineyards, and we were standing at a point where you, it's like, Lou, you played football. Mm-hmm. It was like a white sideline marker that you do yeah. with chalk, sure. right down the side of the football field. Yeah. Only it looked like it ran right down between two rows of grapes, the whole length of the vineyard. And on one side, the soil was gray, and on the other side, the soil was tan, and that was the fault line or yeah. whatever the volcano oh, had done. Line. Yeah, and the soils were two different ones, and you could ju- you could just sit there and look at it and see the difference. You knew that the grapes on the right hand side were going to be different than the grapes on the left hand side. Yeah. And my winemaker used to go out into the vineyards and he'd say, "We stop picking here," and I would say, "Why here? This? Why is your thumb in the in the soil right there?" He says, because the soil just changed. And he was trained as a geologist, not as a winemaker. He became a winemaker later. Fascinating. So it's, I, I it's love just, that. I could talk and learn about that all day. <laughs> That's why I, I wanted so to do Ron. It's interesting how yeah. soil, I don't think we all recognize. Well, you think about there's copper, there's lead, there's potassium, there's sulfates. There's all kinds of th- minerals in that mm-hmm. soil. And vines pick up the minerals. Whatever and then you get, the best way to do it uh, in... In Burgundy, Richebourg, to me, is much more minerally flavored than Latache or Echezeau. If you go to Bordeaux, uh, Latour and Lafitte are very minerally in flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Margot is much softer in flavor mm-hmm. or Santa Steph. Mm-hmm. And the grapevines are pulling those minerals out of the soil yeah. and putting them into the grapes, and they get into the bottle. Mm-hmm. So Terroir. Where, where can we get some Vetercrest wines? You can uh, write me on the webpage, or you can go to French Laundry and have a bottle at the French Laundry. Oh, you're going to take me there? To there the, there's five or six fine restaurants here in Napa that carry the wine, and we're very proud of it. Well, what we'll do is we'll put your link on the bottom of this podcast, uh, yeah. and you guys can click on, and I recommend you... Uh, Find one of those wines. If I get a little bottle of Vetercrest and uh, listen to the podcast while you're sipping it. It's always great. Thank you, Ron, so much. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. This has been so awesome. Spending time with Ron Finolio was an incredible experience for Meredith and Lou, especially considering the history this single winemaker
winemaker represents in the California wine country. And so we're so glad you joined us for this latest episode of Major Crush. If you want to know more about Ron's storied wine label, which is called Vetercrest, we've put links in the show notes so you can find the best way to access his wines. And we want to give a personal shout out to Ron for taking time out of his busy life to meet with Meredith and Lou. And we look forward to our continued relationship with this incredibly interesting winemaker and friend of our show. Thank you.